This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, page 554 in the Blue Bibles. Continuing a series of studies the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 9, through chapter 4, verse 3. Hear the word of God. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw there is nothing better than that the man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done 
under the sun. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your word. We pray now as we study this portion for your grace, for the leading and insight that your spirit gives. And pray, Father, for growth and grace through our study together of your word. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Not every statement that you read in the Bible is true. Now that I have your attention, and before someone calls Georgia Foothills Presbytery to report me, let me explain to you what I mean. Not every statement that you read in any given verse of the Bible is true, and I will give you an example. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the interaction between the serpent and Eve. And he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, to this point, nothing has been said about touching or not touching the fruit of this forbidden tree. And there's no record that God had said that. Was Eve adding that? Had God actually said, you shall not touch it? Well, we don't know for sure, but we know there's no record of it. And it could be that God never actually said what Eve said, that God said there. She may have been mistaken. Well, there's no doubt about what happens next. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Is that a true statement? No. Now, consider the source. It was the serpent. It was the devil who was a liar from beginning and the father of lies, as Jesus would later describe him. But could you turn just at random in your Bible for the verse for today and come to that and it says, you shall not surely die. You know, the Bible says I'm not going to die. That's good news for me today. Well, no. That's an obvious and blatant misuse of the Bible. Not every statement that you read in the Bible is true, particularly that one. Now, every statement in Scripture, every verse of the Bible, every word as well as the whole of Scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is reliable. It is accurate. But not everything you find in the Bible is meant to be a verse to bless your life. Not everything that you read in the Bible is meant to be God's point of view, except perhaps in the broader context. Every word is inspired because it is an accurate record of what was said. It is without error in reporting what the serpent said to Eve, but the Bible as a whole, God does not endorse the serpent's point of view, but that actually is what happened. Now, that's a blatant case, right? You're not going to read what the serpent said and think, hmm, should I take that and apply that to my life? Well, no. He was being deceptive. He was lying. He was tempting her to sin against God, which he does through lying, through deception. As Eve later reported, when confronted by the Lord, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right? So that was a lie. But sometimes it's not quite so blatant. 
There are other passages in Scripture where we need to be careful. Parts of the book of Job are this way, where Job in his heartache is wrestling, is trying to understand what God is doing in his life. Why is he suffering? Why is he so miserable? He's trying to reconcile the truths about God that he knows with the reality in life that he's experiencing. And he says some things that you wouldn't want necessarily to write down as what you ought to think about God and the world. He's being painfully honest. Sometimes he comes right to the edge of some pretty bad theology. The same thing is true with the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're reading 1 Peter, you're reading Romans, you can just sort of have your mind open and just let it all flow in. But when you come to a book like Ecclesiastes, in painful and honest struggle with the providence of God in the world, in reconciling truth with life, the writer of Ecclesiastes also begins to come up with some questionable conclusions to bump up against some places that perhaps we as Orthodox believers would rather not go, but in the anguish in his heart, in the struggles of his mind and in his soul, it pushes him in some ways right up to and maybe just a little bit over the edge. So there are verses in Ecclesiastes and passages you could take and ripping them out of context, end up in a very bad place theologically. Now, of course, you may know that the first rule of interpretation in Scripture is context. The verses preceding and following, the the book as a whole, and in fact, the Scriptures as a whole. You don't just take a verse out, make it absolute as if it could stand on its own and say, "This this is true. Because there are some verses in Scripture, like the one in Genesis 3, where the serpent said, you shall not surely die, where you can get into trouble if you do that. Now, sometimes that happens. I was talking to someone recently, uh, and the subject came up, the preaching in Ecclesiastes. He told me that when he was in high school, public school, back in the early 60s, it was the law back then that there had to be a Bible reading. To start the day. It was state law that in the public schools they had to have a Bible reading to start the day. This was early in the the 1960s. The problem was the principal of his school was an atheist. And he would come on the loudspeaker and he would read a, a verse of scripture for the day, something like Ecclesiastes 9, 5. In fact, he said he would read from Ecclesiastes For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Thus endeth the scripture reading for the day. You can't believe necessarily every statement that you find in scripture. Inspired by God? Yes. An accurate record of what happened? Yes. Absolutely without error. But not God's point of view, not the overall context of Scripture. And so with that in mind, let's look at what we have here in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. I find myself in somewhat of an odd position dealing with this passage of Ecclesiastes because I really am in the position in preaching this text of, of debating my own sermon text in a sense. We're going to look at what he says, but we're also going to answer what he says 
because some of his conclusions are not exactly, shall we say, biblical. Let's look at it. Now, you'll recall that the writer is looking at life under the sun, looking at life as it is, ruling God out of the picture. And here's what he's left with. Under the sun, without God, one is left merely to resigning oneself to making the best of life. One is resigned merely to making the best of life, to doing the best you can with what we have. And in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3, he, he struggles with the inscrutability of life. The inscrutability of life. I tried hard to come up with another word for that one, you know, something simpler. But that is the word. You know, it's Mark Twain who said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Well, inscrutability is the right word, and I figured it was going to be easier to explain it than to try to change it. Inscrutable. It means to be incapable of being explained, impenetrable, unsearchable, enigmatic. Uh, And another way to put it, the best I could come up otherwise, was the mysteriousness of life, but a mystery that cannot be solved. And that's what he struggles with in verses 9 through 15. Look at what he says. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Now, typically, these verses are taken in a very positive way. And there is something positive to them. God does make everything beautiful in its time. Some of you who are with us in the, on, in the evening service have uh, been with us through the study of Joseph back this past spring and into the summer and looking at God's providence in the life of Joseph and some situations that were anything but beautiful. They're hideous because of Joseph's brother's hatred for him, uh, thought of murdering him, instead sold him into slavery and got some money out of him, thought they'd seen the last of him. Go back and lie to their father after bloodying the coat his father had given Joseph, saying maybe a, you know, apparently a wild animal got him. Anything but beautiful. And yet you come to the end of that and see God's purposes in bringing Joseph to Egypt and how God used that to save lives in the famine that was to come, including the lives of his brothers who had sent him there in the first place. And Joseph could say to them, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. To accomplish the saving of many lives. God makes everything beautiful in its time. That's true. And that is sound. That is orthodox. And what he goes on to say, that God has put eternity into man's heart. There's a sense in our hearts that there is something much bigger than just life under the sun. That we are something more than mere globs of cells that happen to make it to the top of the evolutionary chain, but otherwise still just a cosmic accident. There is something in us that longs for something beyond the grave, that that life just ends and it's over. It's universal from culture to culture, from century to century. He has put eternity in our hearts. Augustine put it, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every heart. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest 
in the God of eternity through Christ. So he's right. This is true. But look where he goes with it. Yet, so that he, man, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Yes, God makes everything beautiful, but often we don't see it. Yes, God has put eternity in our hearts, but who can figure out what he's doing? His providence often is inscrutable. Beyond fathoming. Beyond understanding. Why? We especially face that in in the midst of severe suffering. Death or other extreme trials to our souls and our lives. Why? And often we have to say, I don't know. And we have to face the reality that in this life, we may never know. Exactly why God did what he did in our lives. We're not all like Joseph. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we do see the good that came out of it, but sometimes we don't. And even Joseph didn't know that that would be the outcome while he was sitting there forgotten in an Egyptian prison, falsely accused. Why? You see, while there is something positive here, ultimately the preacher, Kohelet's take on it is negative. Yes, God makes things beautiful. Yes, God's put eternity in our hearts. But he doesn't tell us what he's doing. We don't know what's going on. The best we can do is make the most of life. That's a gift from God, just to be able to enjoy life to some extent, the best we can. And so he's troubled with and he wrestles with the the inscrutability of life. Who can figure it out? Who really understands what God is doing? He goes on in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. We say, well, that's good. People should fear God. I don't think that's what he means. He's almost implying that God does it to terrorize us. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes maybe we're not quite as honest as the preacher is here to acknowledge that. Say, God, what are you doing? I thought you loved me. You're my father. Why is this happening? So that people fear. Might say that people cringe before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Or note here in the ESV what has been pursued. It's hard to know how to translate that. It seems to be a Hebrew idiom that basically says God does what he's done before. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. That seems to be another way of saying that, that familiar refrain from Ecclesiastes. And so he's wrestling with this sense of futility in life, of emptiness, and it's, it baffles him. It is inscrutable. But is that really all we're left with? It is certainly true that in particular providences in our lives, we may not know what God is doing. But there are things we do know, and those things we know we cling to. That God is good. That God intends good for us. You see, we have a benefit that the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't have. When we doubt God's goodness, His good purposes for us, we can look back to Calvary. We can look back to the cross. And how can we doubt the good purposes of God for us? Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that 
God uh, has predestined us in Christ to be conformed, as he says, to the image of his son. We know that God's purpose for us is not that our life should be easy and comfortable, carefree, but that we should be sanctified. This is God's will for you, your holiness. And sometimes the chipping away of the sins in our lives is painful. Humbling us is painful. Making us like Jesus hurts. But God is doing that because that is for our good. That is the reason he saved us. He chose us in Christ, Paul said in Ephesians 1, before the creation of the world, that we should be happy and carefree? No, that we should be holy, blameless before him in Christ. So we know something of the purposes of God and their purposes for our good, purposes for our eternal blessing. Not because God intends to be dark and forbidding and stern. Though sometimes we might think he's that way. We need only read the scriptures, look at the wounds of Christ to know otherwise. So the inscrutability of life is one thing that's got him down. There's another thing he mentions in verses 16 through 22, and that is the injustice of life. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun here in this world in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That's discouraging. You look to the very places you would most expect there to be justice and righteousness, and you find wickedness. You find injustice. And we certainly know something about that and the frustration of that in this world. But God will take care of it, right? Well, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter, for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Well, yeah, God does judge, but his conclusions that he comes to aren't very encouraging. He basically says we're like animals and death happens to people and death happens to animals. And what better is it to be a person than a dog since both return to the dust from which they came? What kind of judgment is that? What kind of righteousness is that? Verse 20, all go to one place, all from the dust to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Who knows? Who can really determine absolutely whether people end up any better after death than the animals do? Maybe we just all pass away into nothing, just return to dust and cease to exist. So, verse 22, I saw there's nothing better than the man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Struggling. Are people really any better off than the animals? Death claims us both. Remember, he, he rest, he, it ultimately really does come back to death, doesn't it? Is it better to be wise than foolish? Well, yes, somewhat, but the wise man ends up in the grave just like the foolish man does. So is it really better in the long run? Uh, he seems to really come back to death. Does death render life meaningless? Well, here we can argue with him again. Here we need only look to the empty grave of Christ. 
say, well, you know, I can't go verify that with my own eyes. Well, we have the own eyes of any number of witnesses who've written down this down in Scripture, a very well-attested event in Scripture. In fact, historians accept the reality of other events in history that are far less well-attested than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. If Christ had not risen from the grave, I dare say Christianity would have died out a long time ago because that is the cornerstone on which it is built. Here we are, 2,000 years later. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, the empty grave tells us that the grave does not have the last word, that death is not the end, that we don't pass out of existence, but that God has raised up Christ as the first fruits, and he will raise us up on that last day. And in the meantime, our souls are with the Lord in heaven. The injustice of life. The righteousness, the wickedness, injustice in the law courts, would you expect righteousness to be upheld? And that death winds up claiming the just and the unjust anyway, very troubling to him. And I suspect to you too. And yet we have the rest of the story. We have a perspective that he doesn't have, an assurance that was unavailable to him in terms of the fact that we have the rest of the scriptures. Although he had a great deal of truth in his own day as well. But there's one other thing that really hasn't bothered, and that's the inhumanity of life, the inscrutability of life, the injustice of it. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the inhumanity, the cruelty, the oppression of some people toward others. Again, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Does the word Darfur ring a bell? Auschwitz? In on and on through history, the oppression of a person or a group of people by another group of people. No one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And look at the conclusion he comes to. I mean, he, and, and his day, I mean, he didn't have newspapers, didn't have the internet, didn't have 24 hour cable news. If he was oppressed of the limited scope, of his knowledge of oppression in the world. Aren't there times where you just have to shut off the news? You just have to get away from it for a while? We talked about that, of bearing the burden of all of the troubles in the whole world, which are immediately accessible to all of us, all at once. That's a heavy load. Sometimes you just have to turn it off because it's more than we can bear. Look at this conclusion, verse 2. And I thought, in other words, I concluded... The dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better to be dead than alive, than to live in a world like this. In fact, he goes on to say, it's better never to have been born, because even the dead experienced it. But the one who is not yet born is better off, because he hasn't even seen the oppression and the cruelty and the inhumanities that take place in the world the evil deeds that are done under the sun. But again, we would argue with him, take him to task. Yes, the oppression is very real. And it's an expression of what we confessed earlier when we were in the shorter catechism of our fall into sin. The fact that we are made in the image of God, that that image is marred by Adam's rebellion against God and our inheriting from him not only the guilt of his sin, but the sinful nature, the impulse towards sin, toward rebellion that we receive from him. And you see that in the oppression 
and the injustice, and even the perplexity that takes place in the world. And yet there is a judge. And yet there is a king who will deliver the oppressed, particularly those oppressed ultimately by sin itself, which is all of us, but even those who suffer. You know, Christians who have suffered, the martyrs throughout the centuries who have died for their faith, but certainly the restoration of a new heavens and new earth where there will be no more oppression and where the oppressors and the unjust will be receiving their due in hell together with all who have not repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at each point, we have to come back and say, yes, Kohelet, these things happen in the world, but that's not the whole picture. That's not the full context of a God who sent His Son into the world to conquer death, to restore meaning of knowing the God we were meant to get to, to, to know. To remove injustice from the world. And while the fullness will come with his return, think of what Christians have done through the centuries to remove injustice and to fight oppression and to bring comfort for those oppressed throughout the centuries. So yes, Christ is bringing in the answers to these things in this life and the fullness of their relief in the life to come. You know, there's another passage that is similar perhaps to Job's struggles, these struggles in Ecclesiastes, and that is the struggles of Asaph in Psalm 73. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to read it in its entirety. But he struggles over, again, reconciling the truths, the doctrines he knows with the things that he experiences in life. And he says, how do they fit together? Particularly, Why is it that the righteous suffer while the wicked seem to float along on beds of ease? Why is it this way? If God is who he is, why can it be this way? In verse 11, Psalm 73, verse 11, how can God know? They they say, the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And it was painful. And in verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Doesn't that sound like the writer of Ecclesiastes? I'm just tired of thinking about it. It's just best we can do is enjoy life. It seemed like a wearisome task. Verse 17, until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment. What happened? He came into the presence of God, and it began to become clear. What do we do when we're in the place of of the writer of Ecclesiastes, when life seems inscrutable, the injustice of the world seems to be unsolvable, and oppression is wherever you look? Well, you have to go back to the presence of God and the truth of God in Scripture to get the full picture, to get God's perspective. And then things start to become clear. God is at work. His plan of redemption is at work in this world. And it has made a huge difference wherever it has gone. But God's not finished yet. History is heading toward a glorious conclusion with the return of the King of Kings. 
the one who rules over life with meaning, the one who brings justice, the one who ends oppression. And so we would say with Asaph, then I discerned therein. Then we could say we discern the end. Then it begins to make sense. How well do you know your Bibles? It allows you to see what goes on from God's perspective. It doesn't mean every detail becomes clear. It doesn't mean we suddenly have access to all the thoughts of the mind of God. But it does allow us to see the big picture. And therein lies hope, not despair. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this life, as your people, we are not resigned to bleakness, to a gray outlook, to a sigh of resignation. Lord, we know in this world there is a lot of pain. There is a lot we don't understand. There are things that happen that are absolutely unbelievable and yet real. But Father, we believe that you are the God of history, that you are the one who has sent Christ into the world. And that you are the one who is building your church, who is bringing in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day when there will be nothing but the full light of the presence of God and your truth. When there will be no more injustice, when oppression will be ended forever. Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We thank you in the meanwhile that because we know you, because we know your truth, We can have hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.